Well, it really is uh, not a statement of hyperbole that it's been a long, like I've wanted to do this for a long time. So when I met Tim, he was going to Pastors College back in 2005. And uh, as it turns out, we went to uh, Paul B. Smith Academy, uh, not at the same time, but same high school together and had similar relationships, um, knew, knew the same people and just felt an immediate connection with both Tim and Joanne and their family. And I remember singing in your basement um, that night. And uh, from that point on, really, I've always wanted to be at this uh, body. And uh, so I was thankful for having the opportunity. We're going to go up. My mom and dad live in Belleville now. And we, we grew up in Maple, just on Keel. And, um, and so I love this area of the world. And, and my heart is, every time I see Josh and Tim, uh, and we're together, and I might very well uh, get emotional here too, but I have strong emotion for you. And I... I, I, um, I a strong affection for you, for this church. I have strong affection for, for, um, for any believer um, across denominational lines and things, but, but there's something about you that always um, causes my heart to soften and tears to come. And, uh, and so what an opportunity it is to get to preach from God's word to you. So let me pray, get a hold of myself, and jump into this passage. Father, thank you for this opportunity to care for your church. I pray that you would um, give me unction as I preach. I pray that you would give these dear ones uh, ears to hear. Ask for a fresh infilling of your spirit right now in this place, Lord. For me as I speak and for these as they hear too, that each of us would respond humbly to your word, which is authoritative in every way. Strip away the, anything that I might say that is neither here nor there and the things that need to land, Lord, would you make them land on our hearts? In Jesus' name, Amen. Would you turn to 1 John, the first letter of John, 1 John 3, 19 through 24. I do bring greetings from your sister church in Dayton, in the Bellbrook, or Dayton area. Bellbrook is a south uh, town, small town outside of Dayton, which is just north of Cincinnati. They met this morning, and I know that they prayed for us, and uh, praying right now for me as I preach. 1 John chapter 3. Verse 19, this is the elder, the the pastor, John, uh, older man, loving his people here and sharing. He says, by this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him for whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us 
by the Spirit whom he has given us. Now, our hearts are vulnerable. My heart is vulnerable. Your heart is vulnerable. There's a complexity uh, to each of our hearts in that they can sometimes be soft and sensitive. Other times can be hard and deceptive. Who you and I are on the inside, the very core of who we are, the real us is a significant gift of God when it's working as God intended it uh, to work and not so much when our hearts are prone to wander. Our hearts are a kind of barometer that help us discern right from wrong. Out of our heart comes deep emotions and feelings and most of us a tendency to be excessively self-reflective. Wrestling and wrestling and wrestling. Sometimes we like what we see when we look on the inside and other times we don't like what we see. We are not satisfied at all, sometimes disgusted by ourselves or simply crushed under the yuck of what we see and what we feel inside. Some of the songs that we often sing in our churches help remind us to be still and to place our weary hearts in the hands of the one who will bring us safely home on that final day. We are people who are prone to have a condemning conscience of heart and we must remember to look to the cross, look to the cross, look to the cross. James Boyce, a pastor, um, old pastor, says this. He says, self-condemnation can be due to a number of factors. It can be a matter of disposition and some people are just more introspective and melancholy than others. It may be a question of health. Maybe how a person feels, inevitably how he thinks. Maybe due to specific sin, and maybe due to circumstances. But whatever the cause, the problem is a real one, and it's quite widespread. How is a believer to deal with such doubt? The Apostle John, who again is a father figure here, he has a heart for those who believe in Jesus, those who are Christians, called believers, and they he has a heart for them so much that they, he knows that they have hurting hearts. They, he knows that they doubt. He knows that they struggle. They, they struggle with a condemning conscience. They've got, they've got not only the thoughts inside of them, but they've got people all around. If you've read the letters of, of John, it's just people that are pounding them with excess baggage of, it's not truth, it's, it's Jesus plus all sorts of other things. And so they have all sorts of weight on them. And their hearts are condemning them. Perhaps you here this morning are one whose heart condemns you. It's, it's, you feel doubt. I believe, but I doubt. I don't know that I believe well enough or whatever. You, the condition of your heart, seemingly far from God, maybe this afternoon, stuck in unhelpful patterns, patterns of sin, patterns of unbelief, uh, maybe, and you doubt the love of God towards you. John is speaking to people just like you and me today. Pastor John didn't only know that we will struggle with things like this, but he also knew that there were some basic uh, truths, basic biblical truths grounded in the good news of the gospel that could, that will definitely provide healing to our hurting hearts. So what is it that John knows that he's trying to communicate to his church and what he's trying to communicate to me again this morning and to you this, this afternoon as well, this, it's this. Biblical truth obliterates the scourge of doubting that assaults us. And we are assaulted. We're assaulted by the scourge of doubting. Biblical truth obliterates the scourge of doubting that assaults us. We, we all fight that heart condition. 
Like I said, uh, John had been speaking, he's speaking to a, a group of people, Christians, who uh, truly are Christians. He says in kind of a key verse in 1 John, 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son. These are Christians he's writing to. These are people who believe, who have trusted, believe in the name of the Son of God, that you, Christian, may know that you have eternal life. Now, I remember talking to somebody in our church in Ohio uh, who has been a believer for a long time. He's in his late 50s. He's been a believer since he was a teenager, so 40 years, and and a solid man who was in a Reformed Baptist church, well taught over, over many, many years. He said to me one day, before we went through First John together, he said to me, he said, I, I, just, I don't think we can ever really, really, this is a gospel man. I don't think we can ever really, really know. And so I think I, I, think I know what you're thinking, what you're saying, but John would argue with you. The Holy Spirit would, would come against that and say, no, you can know. You can know without a shadow of a doubt that you are a child of the living God. You can know. Yes, we doubt, but we can know that we have eternal life. The doubting that we feel in our hearts shouts loudly. I mean, there's all sorts of voices coming in. One of the loudest voices is uh, this doubting voice. We feel doubting keenly. We wonder with fear and anger and angst and discouragement and depression. And we allow our hearts to condemn us as Christians. As those bought by the blood of Christ. And in fact, sometimes our hearts can condemn us when we consider verses in this letter. Verses that... John had just wrote in 1 John 3, 14, when he says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love our brothers. Whoever does not abide, whoever does not love abides in death, he says. And so the first question that comes to one's mind often is, what if I don't love the brothers enough? What then? What if my love for others isn't good enough? What if I actually have moments of significant disdain for another believer or struggle with them, another follower of Christ, or even just a little bit of irritation? I mean, how much irritation is okay? Does that mean I'm actually abiding in death as an enemy of Christ if I struggle with being angry towards somebody? These kind of doubts plague us. Am I good enough? Do I obey enough? Do I love enough? Do I read my Bible enough? Do I pray enough? Do I give enough? You look into your heart and see so many things lacking and you wonder, how can I ever truly know that I am a child of God? How can I truly have confidence before God? And John then would have us remember some basic knowledge, basic, and f- basic meaning foundational knowledge that we will be in awe of and learning the rest of into eternity, but basic knowledge of what God has done and is doing in the lives of those who have trusted in Jesus. And as we take the medicine of these words that John writes, we are provided with a strong and powerfully effective tonic for the condition of our doubting um, wayward hearts. Biblical truth, um, which is objective, obliterates the scourge of doubting that assaults every single one of us. And so I want to take a look at a few biblical truths that John points to in these few verses 
The first biblical truth that John points to is that no matter how condemning our hearts uh, might be, and uh, no matter how condemning our hearts feel as those who have believed on Christ, this is true. God is greater than our heart. God is greater than our heart. Verses 19 and 20. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Listen, even though we are very aware as those who've placed our trust in Jesus of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we sing about the gospel every Sunday. We pray the gospel every Sunday. We know that Christ has paid for all of our sins by his perfect atoning work. We often experience a condemning heart or a guilty condemning conscience, and some certainly more than others, but something that most of us and likely all of us struggle with. In fact, scripture uh, tells us that the enemy of our faith is about this very thing. He is wanting to steal your joy and he's trying to steal your faith and your confidence before God by this very thing through this avenue. It's something we should certainly expect and not be naive about. We've already prayed this morning for a number of these things. And God would have us know this morning, I believe, through all the songs, through the prayers that have um, been prayed, and through this sermon, he would have us know this morning and every single morning for the rest of our lives This experience of a condemning heart for the child of God is something that he does not intend. Nor does he desire for us to have. So when your conscience sends you on a trip of condemnation, John reminds us to look in faith to the God who is greater than our fickle hearts and who assures us of our total and complete forgiveness through the perfect effective work of Jesus Christ. Our hearts are not to be trusted, but God surely is. He is greater than our hearts. We can claim this wonderful verse in chapter one, verse nine, which many of us probably have memorized. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. He is faithful He is just. He forgives. He cleanses us. We look to our hearts and they tend to condemn us. But John says, stop looking at your hearts. Look up. Look up. Look to the cross. Look to his faithfulness. Look to his mercy. Look to his steadfast love. He is greater than your hearts. Stop looking at your hearts. We're so prone to look in. Look in. Look in. And he's saying, look up. Look up to Christ. Trust in him. Trust his work. Trust his eternal promises. Trust his infinite promises. And come from him to all those who are in Christ. I'm just going to throw out a number of them right here. Psalm 117 verse 2. For great is his steadfast love towards us and the faithfulness of Yahweh endures forever. Praise Yahweh. Psalm 63.3, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Psalm 144.2, he is my steadfast love, he is my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield and he in whom I take refuge, who subdues people under me. Psalm 59.16, 
I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning for you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. Job, or Psalm 40, verse 11. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. Job 10, 12. You've granted me life and steadfast love, and your care has preserved my spirit. Psalm 31, 7. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul. Psalm 94, 18 and 19. When I thought my foot slips, We feel that, don't we? Our feet slip. Your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. I mean, there are hundreds more where that came from. Hundreds more in God's word to run to, to go to. All those promises are yes and amen in our Savior. John tells us in the next chapter, in chapter 4, verse 16, the first part he says, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. We doubt God's love. We, we, we don't doubt Jesus' love, but the Father's love, oh, the Father's love we doubt because probably, I'm thinking, if you're like me, we grew up in a church, we grew up in churches, we're, we're taught, taught fairly well maybe, but we, we were taught that the Father was so angry at us and Jesus just simply gets in the way and says, no, 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 he's mine. Whereas what the scriptures teach, yes, the Father is filled with wrath against sin and against sinners. The Father, Son, the Spirit love us, love his children. Listen, the promises of God's love toward those who humbly place our hope in Christ are enormous. And John is reminding us that we can be reassured, we can be confident before God because, uh, not because our hearts are strong, but because he is greater than and does not grow weary with, thankfully, our fickle hearts. (laughs) One day we doubt, the next day we don't, the next day we do, do, don't, do, 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 don't. God does not grow weary of that. He just continues to say, look to me, look to me. See, he reminds us that even though he knows absolutely everything about us more than we think we know about how wicked our hearts are, he loves us. The Father loves us. Um, And he's paid the price for our freedom. This is one of the reasons why Paul prays the way he does in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 19, when he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints your hearts. No. May be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And this, my friends, is the biblical truth that John wants to drive home to our weary hearts this afternoon, that we can walk in assurance that God truly loves us as imperfect people who will never, ever get all things right, but who have placed their hope in the only one who did get all things right, the Son of God, Christ Jesus. Sometimes we doubt, sometimes we disobey, sometimes hate comes, sometimes out of nowhere, and these things bother us, and thank God that they bother us. It's a good thing. Those who aren't bothered by the yuck of their hearts and 
actions are those whose hearts are hard and whose consciences have been seared. But for those who truly are born again, and again, this letter is written to those who are born again primarily, our disobedience does not sit well with us. Our tendency to isolation doesn't sit well with us. Our lack of Bible intake bothers us. Our lack of prayer bothers us, and rightly so. But, but rather than peering deeper into your heart to try to find some sort of good to hang on to, look to God. Look to Christ in the gospel of grace and find the freedom, hope, and the joy that is meant for you. Listen, when we don't love the brothers in action and truth, when we don't walk in the light as he is in the light, another passage from John, um, God, who, one, is greater than our hearts, and two, knows all things, he, he deals with us, but he deals with us with steadfast love the steadfast love of a perfectly good father towards his children, children whom he, chapter 3, verse 1, has lavished his love on. Sometimes our hearts rightly um, guilt us. I'm trying to stay away from the word condemns, but because um, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but there is that that pressing, right? Pressing of like that, that, that conscience, that guilt, the spirit's conviction. So our hearts rightly do that. Spirit does that in us, blames us, and works in us towards why we don't love one another, what's going on in our hearts. Our conscience calls us out. But God, in his love and grace and mercy, helps us to find victory and have being uh, uh, overcoming and conquering this, um, this sin in our lives. And by redirecting our gaze on his love as demonstrated in the gospel, he motivates us and he encourages us and he reminds us of the love that we have received and the love that constrains us to love others. You think, think, think 2 Corinthians 5.14, the love of Christ constrains us, controls us. But you must know the love of Christ. You must have received the love of Christ. You must be aware of the love of Christ to let that constrain you. Just a, a picture that was really helpful that Jerry Bridges gave was a, was a picture of a toothpaste tube where constraining is, is like when you put your hand around a toothpaste tube, take the lid off, and you squeeze it on all sides, it does not work for the toothpaste to shoot toothpaste out. It's, it just, it's constrained. It's constrained around. And so ourselves, the love of Christ constraining us, you know, squeezing, squeezing on us, loving, squeezing on us, and what comes out? Christ-likeness. Love for one another, growth. God is the one who knows our hearts better than we know them ourselves. He is greater than our hearts. It's God who will inspire us. It's God who will encourage us. It's God who will challenge us to love others just like he has loved us. And certainly our consciences can sometimes be too lenient in its assessment of our actions or our lack of. But this doesn't seem to be the ones whom John is writing to in this text. It's a right thing to consider. Am I, am I 
you know, not, not aware of the, the holiness that I'm supposed to be called to, that the Spirit is working in me, and we just kind of walk in a little licentious ways. That's not, that's not okay, but that's not who John's writing to here, and so that's not who I'm speaking to here this morning either. He's, he's writing to those whose consciences may be too severe in assessment. Those who forget that, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and yet you walk in this sense of condemnation all the time. God is greater than all. He knows all. He is the perfect judge and none of the believer's failures or successes escape his notice. A number of years ago when I was pastor in Minneapolis, uh, I was really struggling. Uh, during the end of the week, I was supposed to preach at the end of the week and just nothing was there, but I was also, my heart was far from the Lord and I was feeling so, I just did not like myself. Feeling condemned, feeling guilty, feeling all of that. Um, the Lord brought Psalm 139 to mind, and after meditating on that wonderful psalm, I wrote the following, and this, this, is, this is out of my journal. So the knowledge I have of myself, my struggles, my failings as a husband, father, friend, pastor, child of God, all lead me to a point of weariness and emptiness. And at times, I simply don't like myself, and I can't imagine anyone else really liking me either if they knew what I knew about myself. But then God brought to mind this text, Psalm 139. And I realized the good news there is in Christ. The fact is that there is no one who knows me better and more completely than God. He knows more than I know about how deep my failings go. Failings as a dad, as a husband, as a pastor, as a friend, and as his child. And yet, he loves me fully. The truth of God's omniscience coupled with the truth of God's love being demonstrated to me through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus fills me with amazing joy and satisfaction and hope. These thoughts about God are precious to me as one who has repented of my sins and trusted in the work of Jesus Christ in my place. Now, can you identify with any of that? I just bet you can. Remembering who we are in Christ will provide assurance as we stand on that day before holy God who also happens to be our Father. Loving Father. So be honest to God. Say, I I don't know myself sometimes why I do what I do, Father, or what I, why I don't do certain things, but you do know me. You know me perfectly well. So I commit it all to you and put it all in your hands. And then you pray Psalm 139, 23, where the Bible says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And God knows. God knows already. And he has set his affection on you from before the foundation of the world and made a way to be in relationship with you through the perfect life and the atoning death and victorious resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, his son. Biblical truth obliterates the scourge of doubting the assault. Second point, God hears his people. He hears his people. Verses 21 and 22. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Now there's a natural kind of progression here as a flow in John's argument in these verses. Loving others as we have been loved by Jesus assures us, of course, that we are in the truth, that we are saved, that the Spirit is moving in us, conforming us to the image of Jesus because we are doing what he did, what he's done. Even when we don't love 
perfectly. And God says, trust me because I am infinitely greater than your often fickle heart and just walk in obedience before me. And so now that we have confidence, now that we have confidence before God, we can be confident when we pray. John addresses uh, his readers here and the Spirit addresses us this morning through the pen of John with, with a very special word. And it is agapatoi, which means beloved, loved ones. And we tend to read that, beloved, beloved, like we just kind of read it and let it, we don't let it sit. We don't meditate on it. And we, we miss the wonder of that one amazing word. We are those, we are those who are dearly loved by God, we are those who are dearly prized and valued. And so hear the Spirit's heart for you this morning. The, the concern for us as the beloved of God who experience a hurting heart and condemning conscience is palpable in this text. Beloved, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, beloved, remember this wonderfully encouraging truth this week. You are beloved, accepted in the beloved. When we trust the judgment of our fickle hearts um, to our God, when we entrust that judgment to him who is omniscient about everything, our confidence shifts from being based on our experiences and our feelings to being based on God's word and what he says about us, who he says we are, what is true about us. Remember, he tells us, um, and, and this will be the third time I've repeated this to, to get this. There's therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 31 through 34. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? <laughs> My heart all the time. Other people, other voices, the enemy. It's God who justifies. Who's to condemn? I mean, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. He, he calls us to remember the reality and the result of, the, of the, um, the efficacy of the gospel. He says in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin, let us then, let us then draw uh, forward with confidence. Let's draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This confidence that we have before God resulting from a clear conscience in Christ provides motivation and assurance as I approach the Father in prayer. He hears us. He listens to us. John says again, verse 21 and 22, if our heart does not condemn us, beloved, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Our request made in prayer flows from a heart and life that is first resting in a sure confidence before God, not because our hearts are, are, are 
pure and because our minds are pure, we're thinking rightly, but because we know his love for us and we know that we have been born again to a new and living hope and now by the kind of mercies, the, the kind mercies of the Father and the atonement of Jesus Christ and the empowerment of the Spirit, we now delight. We delight in keeping his commands and we walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ in a manner certainly that pleases him. These, these truths provide the crucial theological context for the wonderful promise of chapter 5 in 1 John verses 14 and 15 which say this and this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will he hears us and if we know that he hears us and whatever we ask we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. Now that's, that's worthy of, of, a, of a sermon in itself but let me, let me utilize a quote by Spurgeon that might be helpful here. If our, he says this, if our heart condemn us not, then have we confidence toward God and whatsoever we ask we receive of him. He who has a clear conscience comes to God with confidence and that confidence of faith ensures to him the answer of his prayer. Childlike confidence makes us pray as none else can. It makes a man pray for great things, which he would never have asked for if he had not learned this confidence before God. It makes him pray for little things with which, which a great many are afraid to ask for because they have not yet felt towards God the confidence of children. The man of obedience is the man whom God will hear because his obedient heart leads him to pray humbly and with submission for he feels it to be his highest desire that the Lord's will should be done. Hence it is that the man of obedient heart prays like an oracle. His, his prayers are prophecies. Is he not one with God? Does he not ask or does he not desire and ask for exactly what God intends? How can a prayer shot from such a bow ever fail to reach its target? Believers with clear consciences, uh, confident access, and obedient lives that please Christ, stemming from the perfect righteous record of Christ in their place, which they've been given, can be assured that God will hear and answer their prayers for their good and for his glory ultimately. We are trusting children, those who have trusted in the Father's love, demonstrated for us in the cross of Christ, uh, understood and applied by the power of the Spirit in a regenerating work in us. We are trusting children coming to their loving father who knows all of our sins all of our imperfections and he still loves us and he accepts us in the beloved as he does his son this is confidence building this is attacking the doubting that happens on Sunday evenings and Monday mornings and Friday afternoons Biblical truth obliterates the scourge of doubting that assaults us. Loved, loved by God, heard and responded to by God. What confidence we have. Not a, not a proud, arrogant confidence, but a humble, contrite confidence as one who has been shown mercy. Did not, I mean, the definition of mercy is, is uh, I'm going to be a little, a little uh, um, I can't even think of the word right now, but uh, redundant. Um, but I, I wanted to say, like, like we don't deserve mercy. It's kind of, yes, that's true. We don't deserve what we've been given. We've been given grace. We've been given forgiveness. We've been given uh, the love of the Father when we deserved judgment and penalty, but we have not received what we deserve. Third biblical truth that obliterates the scourge of doubting that assaults us in this text anyway is that God gives us an active faith. Verse 23 
God gives us an act of faith. This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. Now, before we get to anything that we, that we do in this verse, which, which is where we kind of jump to when we read the Bible, is what do I need to do, what do I need to do? Um, I want to just kind of back up for a moment. And because it's imperative that we start at the proper place when we think about this in particular. The faith that we've been given, the belief that we have been commanded to have is a gift from God. Paul says, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing, uh, it is the gift of God not a result of works so that no one may boast. This is no faith that John is speaking of. This is no faith that one musters up. This is, this is not faith that one can somehow attain by good works. This is, this is no belief in action that simply occurs because of some sort of common grace that's doled out on all people. No, it's a, it's a gift from Almighty God. So what we see here, truth that inform our confidence before God, all start not with us, it starts with God. It starts with God, not us, just like the gift of a regenerated heart. It does not start with us somehow pumping our heart from a dead position, pumping our heart and getting it going. It is a gift of God. It is a work on us as we are dead in our trespasses and sin. God gives us faith to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. He's the one who gives us that. He commands it of us and he gives it to us. And then compelled by that love bestowed on us by God, we love one another and we walk in the light. All of what we consider is the work of God in our lives. So let's not bypass that and jump right to, well, yeah, I guess if I, just, if I do all the right things, then I can have confidence before God. No, listen, like, like don't jump ahead. It's a gift of God. God is changing our lives. He's conforming us into his image and these are results that happen that give us increasing confidence that God is at work in our lives. We see two aspects that inform our confidence before God. First, there must be an explicit belief in the Son, Jesus Christ. We must believe in not just something, but we believe in the fact, the reality that Jesus is the son of God and that he is uh, not just a, a man, but he is Christ, Jesus Christ. We believe that. We believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. Every single word in that statement, in this command, is absolutely significant. It's the first of nine occurrences of the word believe in this whole letter. It means to trust or rely on. So we're called to trust or rely on something. And in this case, we're called to trust or rely on Jesus. And not just, not just Jesus, but Jesus' name. And so what does that mean? Jesus' name carries with it all of who Jesus is and all that he accomplished in his perfect life, his atoning death, his victorious resurrection and exalted ascension to the Father's right hand where he rules and reigns and intercedes for all who are his. Jesus is the eternal son of God, the son who did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped for. He was God and is God. The son is that word that John spoke of in his gospel. John 1 verse 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Jesus was that word. Jesus 
is that word. John continues in verse 14 of chapter 1 of his gospel. He says, and that word, that is Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen him. Not just him, but what have we seen? We've seen his glory. And glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That, this, this word is Jesus. That's, that's the name he was given And this word, Jesus, this name, it's equivalent in Hebrew is the word, the name, Joshua, and it means Yahweh saves. Yahweh saves. Yahweh is salvation. And the word Christ, so Jesus, Yahweh saves. Christ, in the original language, means anointed one, means uh, Messiah of God. So putting it all together to believe in the name of God's son, Jesus Christ is to place your trust, to place your faith in him and only him and all that he is as the divine son, the incarnate deity, so deity becoming flesh, so perfect son of God, the perfect son of man, he is perfectly um, man, perfectly God. We believe in him and only him. Believe in his sinless humanity. We believe in his perfect atonement for our sin. We believe that he is the messianic savior. You trust all of him, not some of him. Not just a, a kind of a, a thought about him, about Jesus. Kind of like a Christianese kind of Jesus. No, you believe in the whole Jesus. You trust the biblical Christ as he's clearly revealed in scripture. And you add nothing else to him, nor take anything away from him. Or if you do add to him, or take anything away from him, you have no Christ whatsoever. You've made up your own Christ, which is no Christ. As Paul said in to the Galatian Christians, you believe in a different gospel if there were such a ridiculous thing. There is no other gospel. There is no other Christ. There is no other Jesus. All those who've been given a new heart and new eyes to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, all those who've been given the gift to repent of their sins before holy God, and all those who've been given the gift to place their faith in Jesus Christ alone are those who have, who can have, and experience and meant to have joyful confidence before God now and into eternity. So when we come to sing as a church, when we come to pray as a church or individually uh, as we're driving in our cars, when we come together to Mount Zion, to worship God in his glory with all the saints, with the angels who are dressed in splendor. We come to sing. We come to join them. How do we come? Not on our own accord. We come by the blood of Jesus Christ. So we must believe in Jesus Christ and trust in him. John goes on to remind us that we also then love one another as he commanded us. And of course this command... um, is all over the place in the Bible, New Testament in particular. Arguably the most significant appearance of this command is found in the Gospel of John, chapter 13, verses 34 through 35, where Jesus said on the night he was betrayed, he said, a new commandment I give to you, um, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And that command appears two more times in John's gospel. It's how important it is. John Piper comments this way in in a summary kind of fashion. He says, this one all-embracing commandment of this letter uh, uh, in in 1 John, um, the one all-embracing commandment of this letter is that we believe and that we love These are the foundations of our assurance because these are the evidences of God's work. They're not not evidences of us mustering something up. It's being kind of Christian in name. 
but it is the work of the Spirit in us. It is the, the, God's work in us producing this. It's God's work in us. We can't do this on our own. And that truth, uh, that it is his work at work in us, making us, growing us, not perfectly, but growing us in increasing measure to, um, to reflect the image of Christ, that, that biblical truth obliterates the scourge of doubting. Finally, I'll try to be brief here, uh, but this is such an important piece. Fourth thing, God has given us the spirit. God has given us the spirit. Verse 24, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he's given us. Now John addresses our keeping the commands of God for the fourth time in these last few verses. Uh, but now he adds a blessing that flows from our God-given obedience. Now, to help us understand this verse, sometimes this works, sometimes this doesn't. But this, in this verse in particular, working backwards from in this verse helps us understand this verse better. So I want to work backwards for a moment. So stick with me. Uh, if you, you can look at the text and you can kind of see the phrases, phrases I'm going to use. So we're going to start to understand this, this verse by, by considering this. By the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, whom God has given us as a gift of enormous grace, so by his grace, by, by the Spirit, by him, we know that God abides in us. So by the Spirit, not, not, not because I feel something or whatever, it's by the Spirit, by the Spirit, whom God has given us as a gift of enormous grace, we know that God abides in us and we abide in God. And as a habit of his new life in Christ, the one whom God abides in continually keeps his command. The one who abides in God continually keeps his commands. So listen, let me say that again. By the Holy Spirit, whom God has given us as a gift of enormous grace, we know that God abides in us and we abide in God. And as a habit of his new life in Christ, the one who abides in God continually keeps his command. This, this starts with God. It ends with God. It doesn't end, actually. It continues. Works with God at work in my heart. This is why we can be confident before God. We are not those who are trying to appease a God somehow or somehow finagle into his kingdom. No, he has given us the Holy Spirit. Not, not, a, not a third, like the, the, the weird uncle of the Trinity or something, but it is the Holy Spirit. Father loves us. Savior loves us. Spirit loves us. Father demonstrated his love for us. And while we're still sinners, Christ died for us and applied the salvation, regenerated our heart by the power of the Spirit. Father, Son, Spirit loving us, growing us, moving in us. We're not trying to finagle into his kingdom. He makes every way, every way forward. We're given a new heart by him. Baptized into the body of Christ by him. Baptized with power from on high to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel and on mission with Jesus as he rules and reigns in his kingdom which knows no end. The spirit is active all the time in our lives, routinely working, conforming us to the image of Christ, empowering us for ministry for this mission that he's on. So, Josh, let me just encourage you. I know that you know this, but the Spirit will empower you these next two weeks to give you everything you need for the sake of kingdom work in particular. And for those of you in this church who are working so hard towards this, may God bless you as you find your strength in him, especially that you do find your strength in him. He is absolutely vital, the Spirit, absolutely vital in giving us the assurance, the confidence before God that we are meant to revel in. I've been asked by a man in our church most recently, as like six, six months ago, maybe nine months ago now, he said, Steve, how do you know? I mean, how do you know that you're a Christian? Well, I can answer, you know, I, I, believe, I believe in Jesus, I trust in Jesus. Um, I can give all a bunch of apologetic 
answers to like why certain things are true and why things aren't true and why I can place my hope in that and everything. Ultimately, how I know is by the Spirit. You know because you know because you know. Why? Because the Spirit is in you and the Spirit of God affirms, confirms in your heart that you are His. We've been given the Spirit. And when we consider that, we must be a people who earnestly pursue not only the gifts of the Spirit, which are wonderful and we need to, uh, not only the fresh infillings of the Spirit um, for empowerment for ministry and for the sanctifying of our lives, but we pursue the Spirit to experience an ever-deepening assurance that we are God's children. And so I want to close with this thought from an old Puritan who died almost 400 years ago, a man named Edward Elton. He says, I take it, therefore, that the witness and testimony of the Spirit he has spoken of is an inward secret and unspeakable inspiration of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, inwardly, secretly, and in an unspeakable manner, informing our hearts and inwardly persuading us that God is our Father. And pouring into our heart a secret, wonderful, and unspeakable sweet senses and feeling of God's love to us. We've experienced that. We want more of that. And not of God's ordinary or common love, but of his special and fatherly love. That God loves us with such love as he bears to his only begotten son, Christ Jesus. In whom we are adopted to be his children. As the Lord Jesus himself speaks in that excellent prayer of his in John chapter 17, verse 23. That God loves us. We believing in Christ as he has loved us. And to this purpose, the apostle speaks plainly. Romans 5, 5. The Holy Spirit of God given to us doth infuse and pour into our hearts a sense and feeling of God's love to us in Christ. Friends, it's this assurance that we find in not only knowing truth cognitively, but also experientially by the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We know that we're his. We know that we're children of God. Paul tells us in Romans eight sixteen, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Biblical truth obliterates the scourge of doubting that assaults us. Now, how can we have confidence before God? We can be reassured and therefore have confidence before God because the Bible tells us that God is greater than our heart and that God hears our prayers and that God gives us an act of faith and he has given us the indwelling spirit who continually fills us afresh as we seek him. And all of that wonderful foundational truth leads to this final application and it's just a call to seek and pursue the Holy Spirit. There's an illustration that I'll close with. It's a picture by Thomas Goodwin, another Puritan. He speaks of a man and his little child walking down the road and they're walking hand in hand and the child knows that he is the child of his father and he knows that the father loves him and he rejoices in that and he's happy in that. Fairly content walking down the road. There's no huge uncertainty about it. Um, maybe no uncertainty at all. And yet, Goodwin continues. He says, though there is no uncertainty about the father's love, suddenly the father, moved by some impulse, takes hold of that child and picks him up, fondles him in his arms, kisses him, embraces him, showers his love upon him, and then he puts him down again and they go on walking together. 
The child knew before that the father loved him. He knew that he was his child. But, but this loving embrace, this loving embrace of the father, this kind of extra outpouring of love, this unusual manifestation of it, that's the kind of thing that the Bible speaks of as a fresh infilling of the Holy Spirit. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes this, do you, not, do you know anything of the glory of God? This immediacy, this certainty, this absolute assurance given by the Spirit that banishes all doubt and uncertainty. And you know that God loves you in a particular way, an everlasting love in Jesus Christ. Do you know? Do you know that you are Christ? Like you really, really know and you love him and you feel it. You feel his love for you and you love him and you want others to know about him. Friends, Friends, let's pursue that. We, we, can, we, can, we can experience that. We can know that. We can not just know that from some sort of theological mindset that we have or being well taught, but by the power of the Spirit in filling us so much afresh that we feel the Father's love in such an earnest and dear, near way. I believe that the Lord would have us ask him to pour out his Spirit on us. I want to do that just even right now as I close and as you come to lead as we pray. We have not because we ask not. And so, Father, there are people this morning all over the place in our thinking, in our minds. We are um, battling with doubts. We're, we're struggling with focus. We're uh, perhaps by the power of your spirit we're moved to desire to pray even right now and and we do come as broken people and yet people who um, your word says that you've lavished your love on and you've given us the spirit you've saved us you have made us right with you through the perfect and finished work of Jesus Christ and you've told us to ask for um, and to pursue the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Or we, we, we know that, that the Spirit, as he works in us, will continue to conform us into the image of Christ, and, and that is an amazing miracle that's taking place in our lives, your work, your effective work. And yet... Um, Yet in the middle of that effective work, there are times uh, that you choose in your kind, merciful sovereignty to pour out your spirit on your people. And so, Lord, we would just ask this morning, we, we, don't, we don't pretend to even ask properly in any sort of specific manner. We just ask you to pour out your spirit on us. Lord, would you pour out your spirit on this church family? Deepen this church family, Lord. May they know your love for them. May they know your love for them so well, so clearly, that their lives would be so affected um, uh, vertically, but horizontally as well, not just with one another, but in the community and in the greater Toronto area. Lord, would you see that this church would be, whether it is a remnant or a growing, a growing remnant, Lord, we would pray that that, that growing remnant would be deep and wide and broad and, and high into the love of Christ, which knows no end. May we be a people who remember to pray and seek this and remember your promises and to know your promises that you do love us. 
And you've given us all that we need. And you will give us all we need. And you'll give us more than we can imagine or ask. And so come and fill us, please. In Jesus' name, amen.